Look at this team. You guys just getting excited. We're, sent, we're, uh, we're going with them in heart and spirit. We're going to pray for you. I hope that you would be praying. You leave, you Friday. said Friday morning? Yeah. And uh, they'll be gone till the next Saturday. So they'll be gone for a week or so. So just spend this time praying for them. Next week we can pray for them at church as well. But they're going to go, uh, I believe, touch lives. Their lives are going to be touched, but people are going to find Jesus through them. And so would you just stretch your hand out and we're going to lift them up as they go. Lord, we pray right now for our team that's heading off to Ensenada, Lord. We thank you for their obedience, Lord. We thank you for your provision that's come along the way, Lord. We pray that as they go out, Lord, we, we already know that you're going to have your hand upon them. And so we ask that you would guide their travel days, Lord. I pray that you would give them favor, Lord, at the border, that it would be quick, Lord, as they go back and forth, Lord, we pray for protection over every single one of them as they fly through the air and, and um, drive down the road, Lord. We pray that you'd cover that, Lord. But more than all of that, Lord, we pray that you would use them, Lord, boldly to declare Jesus in Mexico, that you would use them boldly to declare your name and who you are and what you've done in their lives. I pray that you would use them, Lord God, to, to meet people that need you, so desperately need you, Lord, that it wouldn't just be going and doing some things on a mission trip, but Lord, that people would find Jesus through them, that they would see them in their lives. We pray for a unity on this team, that you would bind them together, Lord God. There would be no uh, troubles, Lord, between team members, but it would be a, a time of unity together. We pray that you would carry them out, Lord, with blessing and send them out as witnesses, Lord, unto all the earth, starting with Ensenada. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we look forward to seeing you guys in a week and a half. Two weeks. And we're going to hear from them on the 24th. They're going to get back late Saturday the 16th, and so we decided to not make them be all ready to share the next day. They'll be excited to, but, but you know, what are you going to do? they got to rest. Uh, if you did not receive communion, oh, I should put our ushers on the spot because they're right in the middle of doing offering. Uh, but if you didn't receive communion, if you could just raise a hand up and we're going to do this at the end. So if you don't have one of these little cups, it's like most people got them. If not, hang on to that. We're going to get to that at the end of the, the service today. Well, welcome out to church under the tent. You know, we could have just done outdoor and no tent, but I'm grateful that we chose to put it up this year. <laughs> we, we, generally, we generally have had a lot of success not having rain on Sunday mornings, but 2022 has not uh, disappointed in bringing lots of rain, so no, no surprise here. Um, remember, summer doesn't start till July 5th in Washington, so by next week it'll be here. Well, I was thinking about uh, I was thinking about when I was in college, well, high school and college, and like the most stressful time of the year is finals week. You guys remember finals week? Oh my goodness, finals week. You, you're, you can kind of make it along all throughout the year. And I remember I was working full time all the way through college, but on finals week, I would work like maybe like two shifts and just go all in. You got to get all that information in, you got to cram it in, and you get the finals done. And just take a deep breath, and it's like, oh. And then you realize you're a freshman in college, it's the first semester, and you're going to do this again at the end of the next semester. And then finals week comes again, and you do it again. And then there's that feeling on your very last year, your senior year, 
and it's the second semester, and it's finals week, and you realize this is the last one I'm ever going to have to do. Now, someone's asked me, oh, you're going to go get your master's? I was like, no, no, I'm done. This is it. This is the last finals. But you get to that last finals week, and, and I remember the very last final of the last class, and just walking out, there was just this, oh, relief, like I never have to do this ever ever again. And it's just the best feeling. And then all of a sudden you have life and responsibilities and all that. And that's fun too. But I'll tell you what, getting done with the last final. So those of you who are in high school and in college, hang in there because there is a point in which you'll take your very last final and then you won't ever have to do it again. And you'll be able to take that nice sigh of relief. It'll be a good time. Uh, I, I, was, I was digging into our text. We're going to be in Hebrews 9 today. And we're going to be talking about the final sacrifice, what Jesus did, that when Jesus sacrificed his life, it was like the final final. Whereas every year the Israelites had given over and over sacrifice, they'd come to that day of atonement, they'd have to offer the sacrifice, they'd have to come back the next year, and they'd have to do it again and again and again. But when Jesus came and he gave his life, that was it. It was the final final. There was nothing else after that that needed to be done. So we're going to get into our text. This is our last message on this series, The New and Living Way, and then we're going we're gonna to do some things over the next few weeks, and we'll, we'll get into our next series this summer at some point. So turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we're going to cover most of Hebrews 9 and 10. However, we're, not gonna re- we're just going to pull excerpts out. So as you're turning to Hebrews 9, uh, I want to just mention that we've got summer camp coming up. At the last week of July, and it's, if you haven't signed up for summer camp, I'm not sure why, because it's the best week ever of the whole year. So, um, I don't, is even, did you, oh, is it open, kind of? She can open it. See, Meg, Meg, can you just wave with your free hand that you're not holding someone's beautiful child? Uh, we, we, camp registration's actually closed, but I, I don't want you to miss out if for some reason you haven't signed out or you've never been to camp or you've said, I don't really know anybody. That's the best reason to go to camp because after you're going to get in there and it's not going to be scary and it's going to be the best week and you're going to walk out with friends and you're going to know people. So if for some reason you haven't signed up for camp, we'll give you one last shot today. See Meg and, uh, and we'll, get that, we'll get that ready for you. But you want to be there. All right. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's start with verse 22. Hebrews 9, 22. Uh, so let's see. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the central point of chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews. And we've, we've worked through Hebrews this year. Hebrews is such a deep book, so rich. And, uh, and we're getting to the end of this section in which the author of Hebrews is convincing these early Jewish Christians to stop going back to the Old Testament way. Don't be tempted to go back to the old sacrificial system. And this is his kind of main point here in Hebrews 9 and 10, is that the final sacrifice has been given. And that might not seem to apply to you the same way or hit the same way because you probably weren't living a life in which you used to have to go and sacrifice an animal for sins. But there is a a richness and depth in what Jesus did for us that we're going to discover today. 
And so he brings out this point that everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, sin always leads to death. Sin will always lead to death. Now, maybe not at first, but eventually it will. You, you, well, sin is enticing at times. Sin might seem like the fun route, but I want you to know that sin is ultimately the death route. It always leads to death. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And so, in order to be made right with God, a life must be given in your place. We serve a perfect God, amen? A holy God. There is no one like Him. There is no comparison. And in order for the imperfect to be in relationship with the perfect, there must be a sacrifice given. The Old Testament priests had to go through so much ritual to get themselves what they would call ceremonially clean because they, didn't, they couldn't enter the presence of God dirty. If they enter the presence of God dirty or sinful, then they just die. It's over for them. And so there is this problem that's in place is you have a perfect God and you have sinful men. And in order to be made right with God, God had came up with this system in the Old Testament that if you would sacrifice the life of another, an innocent, a pure animal, then I will see the blood of that animal and it will die in your place and you will live. It says in Leviticus 17, verse 11, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So this is the background. This is the situation that we find ourselves in in Hebrews 9, a life for a life. Now, as we've studied these last few chapters about Jesus has become the ultimate high priest of the new and living way, and if you miss those, you can catch those on our church app. Today, the author of Hebrews tells us that he's not only the one who makes the sacrifice, he's not only the high priest who comes into the holy place and makes the sacrifice, but he actually is the sacrifice, that Jesus is the sacrifice. And if you've been in church for a minute, for a while, you probably already know that. You probably have heard that. But we're going to look at the depth of what that really means to us today. You see, Jesus, as the author of Hebrews tells the early Jewish Christians, has solved the issue of the Old Testament system. He has resolved it. It has been resolved, the Old Testament sacrificial system. But I want to be clear on this. Jesus isn't just the solution to an Old Testament issue. Jesus is the solution to a human issue. And the human issue is sin. The real issue is sin within the heart of man. That final sacrifice Jesus gave to set us free to live a new and living way. On this Independence Day, on this day where we celebrate freedom tomorrow, on this this holiday, I want you to know that Jesus has set you free to live a new and living way, a different way of living, a way that is full, a way that has joy, a way that has hope that's different from this world. That is the new and living way. So let's dig into Hebrews. We'll start with Hebrews 10. I'm going to jump around a little bit today. Like I said, uh, if you go into Hebrews 9 and 10 and read it, he goes into great length. It's worth the read. I'm not going to read it all but you can go home and you can read that this week, Hebrews 9 and 10, and just see the bigger picture. But it says in Hebrews 10, verse 1, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, 
not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to to worship. Otherwise, they would not would they not have stopped being offered for the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin so he sets up this issue he tells us that everything's purified by the blood that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins Now, in their minds, they're thinking, absolutely, you're right. This is why we have the Day of Atonement. This is why we sacrifice. But then he points out here, hold on, that sacrifice that you are thinking of is an inadequate sacrifice. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sins. He wants his readers to know that even though the sacrifice of animals, which the law of Moses required, had a purpose, it was ultimately inadequate. And it was inadequate, he tells us, because it actually couldn't remove sin. It could not remove sin from your life. Could you imagine living a life in which you just had to carry that sin with you? It couldn't remove your guilt either. It couldn't remove your guilt. I I don't think, when I think about people and sin, I I think most people, they don't have a problem with sin in their life. What they have the problem with is the guilt in their life that sin brings about. And they go hand in hand. And I wonder if maybe if people could somehow not feel guilty if they would just sin anyway. I don't know, but they go hand in hand. And and the problem with, he says, the blood of bulls and goats with the animal sacrifice, it couldn't actually take away sin. It couldn't take away guilt. It can't perfect God's people. It can't actually do what is needed to be perfected, to be like Christ. This is what we are here for as Christians. Now, it doesn't make it meaningless, that sacrificial system. It was actually, he says, a shadow, a foreshadowing of what was to come, the perfect sacrifice. Now, let's jump back to Hebrews 9, and we're going to take a look at the perfect sacrifice, verse 11 through 14. So he set us up, and he said, all right, there's a sacrifice that is needed. Blood needs to be shed to be in communion with God. But the sacrifice of animals isn't going to cut it. But in... But in Hebrews 9, verse 11, it says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered by the most holy place once and all, once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those or ceremonial unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. In other words, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it would clean you up outwardly. You could get cleaned up. I don't know how blood cleans you up. When I have blood on me, I want to wash it off. But that was kind of how that worked, all right? And then verse 14, he said, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve? the living God. This is the perfect sacrifice that Christ offered himself unblemished to God. Now it's interesting if you really read this and you kind of got to read it in a few different versions I feel like to really get the big picture. But really what he's saying is is that Christ offered himself through eternal spirit, the eternal spirit of Christ offered himself unblemished to God. 
and presented himself as the sacrifice. The high priest who would go to sacrifice offered himself as the sacrifice, but it didn't take place in the earthly tabernacle. Now, last week, I think it was, or the week before, I talked about heaven's high priest. And if you, you got to go back to get some context on that. The tabernacle in heaven, where the mercy seat is. Jesus offered himself in heaven at the tabernacle to God. We see here a powerful truth revealed. This is really fascinating. After Jesus died on the cross, his eternal spirit appeared before the Father... Isn't that crazy? He appeared before the Father and he made sacrifice in heaven for our atonement. This is part of the unseen process that took place during the days between the cross and the resurrection. So Jesus died on the cross. It says that his spirit, here in Hebrews, went to heaven, to the tabernacle in heaven, offered himself unblemished before God as the sacrifice and said to the Father, I am the sacrifice for the sins of of mankind. He, it says in, uh, when he died, he committed his spirit to the Father's hands. We see in Luke 3, 23, he breathed his last and instantly was with the Father in paradise. And this is where he offered that sacrifice. The, he was our substitution. And like a spotless lamb, he was without blemish of any sin. We also learn in Scripture, in 1 Peter and in Jude, that at this, also during these three days while Jesus was dead, he also, went, um, he also went and proclaimed victory to captive demonic spirits awaiting the day of judgment. He went to hell. He went to heaven and hell. He was dying. I don't know. Yesterday I got a lot done. It was like I felt accomplished. Jesus accomplished more while he was dead for three days than I have done in my entire lifetime. Can you imagine that? It's a hard thing to fathom, but well, after Jesus died on the cross... It says that he went to heaven, he offered himself as the final sacrifice, then he went to hell, he bound up Satan and, pro and proclaimed freedom to the captives, and then he rose from the dead. That blows my mind a bit, because see, the spirit of Jesus is eternal. The spirit of man is eternal. There, there is a death of the physical body, but there's not a death of the spirit. And so we see the blood of Jesus on heaven's altar. That's the perfect sacrifice. And this is what the author of Hebrews is really drawing out for us that he wants us to understand, is that it is the blood of Jesus on heaven's altar that is the perfect sacrifice. You wonder, well, wh why, why did it go away? Why, why, did, why did we have to stop sacrificing? I know Jesus died. Well, it's because the blood of Jesus was placed on heaven's altar for all time, and he is the perfect sacrifice. And this sacrifice is a catalyst for an internal work that Jesus will do. You are now free to pursue transformation. You have been set free to overcome temptation. You have been set free to overcome sin because of the perfect sacrifice, he tells us. And not only was it perfect, but it was final. Let's go to Hebrews 10, 1 through, uh, 11 through 14. 11 through 14, this will be our last section of text here this morning. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he awaits 
for his enemies to be made his footstool. Just a side note for that. He's talking about when Jesus returns for the millennial reign in the end times. So Jesus is hanging out there at the right hand of God, waiting to be told, it's time for you to go back and kick butt and take names. He's waiting for all of his, everything to be under his feet for all time. And then in verse 14, it says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus is the final sacrifice. The final sacrifice. In verse 18, it says, where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Sometimes we beat ourselves up as if we have to sacrifice. Like we have to pay some kind of punishment for God to accept us. We've done something wrong or, or we've done something in our past and we have to somehow atone for that. We have to somehow do three things to make up for the one wrong. And yet sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. The final sacrifice has been given. And I want to just share these, these three aspects that were, are pulled out of this, this scripture here in, in chapter 10. And the first is this, is that the final sacrifice, it is extended forgiveness for all time. For all time. It is that eternal final sacrifice. He makes the removal of sin possible from your life. The removal of sin from your life. Not just the cover-up of sin. Not just the pretend that sin's not there. Not just that temporary, I'm going to not sin today. I'll get back to it tomorrow. Not just the I kicked this habit for a couple months, but then it came back. No, the final sacrifice extends a forgiveness that makes the removal of sin possible in your life. And that's what God desires for you is the removal of sin. Praise the Lord Almighty. You don't have to go kill an animal and offer it to God. I mean, can you imagine how long communion would take every Sunday? Like it, it was like, this was why maybe once a year was the, was the deal. You only have to offer one thing to God. There is a sacrifice, however, that needs to be made, and that is your repentance. That you sacrifice your pride. You sacrifice your, your, your need to be right. You sacrifice that self-want, that selfishness, and you offer your repentance. See, I think sometimes as Christians, we think, oh, Jesus has done it all. Hallelujah. I'm going to go live my glorious life and Jesus has, has done the rest and I can just go do whatever I want. Well, here's the challenge. The end of continual sacrifice doesn't remove the need for continual repentance. I think sometimes as Christians, we think I did that. I said, Jesus, come into my heart, forgive me of my sins, and then I was good. I kept on sinning, but you know, what are you going to do? Continual repentance is a lifestyle of a Christian. Someone who is growing, who is transforming, becoming like Christ, is someone who in their life has a habit of repentance. A habit of when sin comes in your life or when temptation comes in your life and you don't resist that temptation. When you treat someone you love less than, when, when you treat your spouse in a way that, is, that you think is, is fine. You're right to treat them that way. And then you go read the New Testament and you see, husbands, here's how you should treat your wives and wives is how you should treat your husbands. And you realize, uh-oh, that's where repentance comes in. Or you go to the Lord and you say, God, I repent and I come and I turn a different way. I'm not gonna live this way anymore. 
where, where the things, where, where the Bible says that, um, for example, James writes, where he says, why do you have blessing and cursing coming out of the same mouth? Why are you praising God on Sunday and swearing like a sailor on Monday? Why is it coming out? Why are you saying to this person, why are you putting this person down? Why are you being mean to this person? And yet you're praising God that he's their great God. And repentance is where we come to the Lord and we recognize God wants to do something within me or to become more like him and to not just continue to look like the world. So we say, God, I need your forgiveness. And that forgiveness is extended. Too many Christians, I feel like, are, aren't, are not deeply compelled to live a life of holiness because they've taken forgiveness for granted. Too many Christians, and, I, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody here. It might be you, it might not be, I don't know. It's me sometimes. Where you take it for granted what Jesus has done. But yet, we're compelled to live a life of holiness because here, here's the problem, I, I believe, for us as New Testament Christians. The fear of being unrighteous, that factor's been removed. We don't have to fear being unrighteous. We don't have to fear that because we are the righteousness of God in Christ. And so we don't have to live a life to go, oh no, God's not going to accept me because he sees us through the eyes of Jesus. But then we can take that for granted and say, hey, I'm good. I'm good. That's good enough. I, I hope that if you, if you are married, that on the day of your wedding, you thought this is the best husband or the best wife I'll ever be. I'm not ever going to try to improve. This is good. I put a ring on it. I'm married. I told her she loves me. I told her I love her. I'll let her know if that changes. Otherwise, she can just assume oh, we're good. Like, that's kind of a ridiculous line of thinking. And yet, we think, well, look, I, I'm right. I'm having the righteousness of God. There's nothing else. And yet, there's a call to, to holiness. See, we don't have this reminder of our sin. We, we only have a reminder of God's mercy. As we receive communion together, we have a reminder of God's mercy. And gratitude for God has replaced fear, which is, I think, is a good thing, that we don't fear God in that way. We're not afraid of God. But we can't ignore the call to holiness. He says here in the text that it was for one, by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. See, the final sacrifice calls us to holiness. Calls us to holiness. This phrase mean, made holy in the text is the Greek word hagiatso, and it's the same word translated sanctified or sanctification. That, that process of sanctification, it means this, to set apart unto God and apart from the world to be consecrated and dedicated to God, to be purified both externally in conduct and internally in our souls. Christianity in America, I fear, has often become understood with this statement, Jesus died to make me happy. Well, I've got news, Jesus died to make you holy. Not the same thing. Sometimes it can be the same thing. But we've got to get out of our minds this idea, Jesus died to make me happy. Instead, put in our minds, Jesus died to make me holy. He died that I could be set apart, that I would be consecrated and dedicated to him, that I would be different from the world, that I would think different, speak different, act different. And guess what? It's uncomfortable. Holiness is uncomfortable. I promise you it's 
It's uncomfortable. You, you, I, don't, I haven't met anyone who's like, I am striving for holiness, and it's just, it just comes so naturally to me. I've never met anyone like that. You know, I tell my coworkers, like, I'm a holy man of God. You shouldn't speak that way around me. And they go, oh, yes, holy man of God. Like, it doesn't happen. That is not a reality. The reality of holiness is it's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable because the human nature wants to fit in with the rest of the world. Our human nature wants to fit in. We don't want to stand out. We want to blend in. But here's the problem. God's word says, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't try to just fit in, but be transformed by God. That's holiness. And it's a process. And holiness happens this way. Daily, I decide to live my life for Jesus and him alone. That I wake up and I say, today, I want to live my life for Jesus. I'm not going to live like the world. I'm not going to speak to this person the way that I heard this person speak to this person, even though I was like, yeah, I got him, okay? Now I'm thinking, I'm going to be holy. I'm going to be set apart. I'm going to be different because the Bible tells me how I should be speaking in my life. The Bible tells me how to conduct my life. And I want to see Jesus transform me from the inside out. And so I live a life of holiness. And it's not just about actions. In fact, it's mostly about what happens inside. It's about thoughts. It's about heart. Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do you ever say something and then get out the fishing pole and went, I didn't mean it? Here's the problem. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and, and it's something that we don't, we don't like to face with, but it, if it came out, it got it. It's in there somewhere. It's in there somewhere. And so we commit to holiness on a daily decision in our life to say, God, I want to live set apart for you. I don't want to be like everyone else. I want to be like Jesus. And finally, it says here that it is by that one sacrifice he has made perfect. He has made perfect. The final sacrifice perfects us. Not a status, but a process. Being perfected by God is not a status. Not a single person in this room is perfect. You say, well, it says he has made perfect. The best translation of this, if you go back to the original language, is that he is, he, he is making perfect forever those who are being made holy. Philippians 3.12, Paul writes this. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul understood that the final sacrifice opened the way for him to live his life being perfected by God. Being perfected by God. This phrase made perfect means to bring to completion, to accomplish or to fulfill a purpose. That to be perfected by God is to live your life like God has a purpose for your life. To live your life like God wants to complete something in you. That he wants to do something in your life that is a good thing in your life. God has a purpose for your life. He has a work that he wants to complete. I believe that for every single person. When you said yes to Jesus, there is a purpose in your life that I believe that is unlocked or God's, where that's, that's been there all along. That you have been in the eyes and the heart of God. And that purpose of your life is being perfected. It's being made like him. 
And we see the Apostle Paul, he was striving for that completion. He was striving for holiness. I'm convinced that Paul, and you read, if you've ever read the letters from Paul, you know he's not perfect because sometimes he's a jerk in his writings. I guess the reality, like the, even the Holy Spirit in Paul still sounded like a jerk sometimes, which is amazing to me. But he was being perfected. And if you read through like his story and he gets shipwrecked, you, you see a humility start to come over him a little bit by a little bit in his life. I'm convinced that as Paul, as he wrote in Philippians 3, that he was pressing on. He's not perfect, but he's pressing on to that perfection. I'm convinced that holiness was increasing in Paul's life as he grew closer to meeting Jesus at the end. This is the power of the final sacrifice in our life. It's not just something that happened, that we come to a church and we hear Jesus died for your sins. The, the final sacrifice of Jesus is still at work. It's still working. It's still extending forgiveness. It's still creating an opportunity for holiness and transforming us. It's still perfecting us. And as we take communion today, I want to remember what Jesus did in the final sacrifice, not just as a remembrance of gratitude. I want us to look at communion through a different lens. And lens, not the lens so much that we say, Jesus, I am so thankful that I get to live this happy life. Be thankful that you get to live a happy and joyful life. I'm not saying there's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing, unless your idea of happiness is to go out drinking on Saturday nights and then come to church Sunday, we, we should talk. Um, there's holiness that God calls us to. But I, when I say a happy life, I mean one that's rich because you know that the life you've chosen in Christ is so much better than any life you can choose outside of him. But when we look at the, the final sacrifice of Jesus, what we see is a work that was done that is still being done. That when I, when I take the, the bread and the cup, I don't just see God, Lord Jesus, you did this for me so that I could be happy, but, but Jesus, you did this for me so that I could be holy. That you could prepare me to meet God someday. That I would live a life of holiness. There is a sober reminder in communion in which we take a look at our lives and we say, God, where is there sin in my heart? Where is there sin in my life? Where are the things that I just continue to live like the world? I continue to live in the selfish way. I continue to have these habits and these addictions and I don't want to lay them down because it's too hard or no one will find out or whatever it happens to be. And yet, the final sacrifice has a purpose to sanctify us, to make us holy, to perfect us, to bring us to a place where we become like Jesus. Amen? And so if you would just take out this little, this little wafer, this little, this little bread. Oddly enough, when we, when we read, we don't usually read this part of the communion passage, but it's very much there and very much... And now I've got to find that spot in the Bible. where he's talking to the early church about communion. And he's telling them, he's telling them how to take communion. The whole, the whole point of this 
he's actually correcting a problem in the church. And the problem in the church is they were just living it up. And they were just getting drunk and going, Woo, the body and blood of Jesus. And then people would show up late and there was no food left, which personally, I kind of think that's your problem if you weren't on time. But if you're late to a potluck and there's no food, I'm sorry. But he wanted them to think of others. In 1 Corinthians 11, where we usually read this communion passage out of, I don't know if you turn it in your Bible, it says here, correcting an abuse of the Lord's Supper. And he actually says, and we don't read this part usually on, on our Sundays, but we might as well where it says, hey, before you come to the Lord's Supper, will you check your heart? Will you, will you check the, your motive in coming? Will you check why it is that you're doing this? And he, and he says, before you do that, before you come to the Lord's table, I want you to stop and I want you to just reflect for a moment and say, where am I with the Lord? Where is the sin in my life? Where, where am I living a life so much like the world that holiness has no room? And so let's stop and reflect for a moment as we think about what Jesus has done, the final sacrifice final sacrifice that he gave his body for us would you just ask him here in this moment is there sin in my life that I need to repent of today is my selfishness my world that revolves around me I surrender that today to you Lord We just come before you and we repent today. We thank you and we praise you for your forgiveness, God. That you've extended your forgiveness. You have extended holiness. You have extended perfection to us. Lord Jesus, thank you that your body was broken. We ask today that as we take this, Lord, that you would perfect us. That we would make holiness a priority in our life as you came and offered yourself perfect, unblemished, holy and set apart and you gave your life for us. Would you stir within our hearts that same desire to live a holy life for you. Thank you, Jesus, for your body. Let's take the bread. says in 1 Corinthians 11 25 in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me Jesus we thank you for the blood that was placed on the altar the final sacrifice I pray right now for anyone here today who is stuck beating themselves up, bringing their own sacrifice, feeling like they're less than, like they're unworthy, feeling like there's no purpose, that you could never have a plan or a purpose for their life. We receive your final sacrifice today. And we thank you. We come with hearts of gratitude, but also we come with a heart of expectation 
that you are going to transform our lives as we surrender to you day after day. We thank you, Jesus, the perfect and final sacrifice for our sin. Amen. Let's take the cup. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here and they're going to close us in the song. And then we'll be on our way. Tomorrow as we celebrate Independence Day, take a moment. Take a moment to just thank Jesus for that freedom that he's brought by becoming the final sacrifice for you and for me. Amen?